HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, this is Kat, Communications Director of HRN, here with a preview of Episode 2 of Meat and 3. This week, we're talking pork. We'll learn the best way to make a BLT. I don't think I've ever successfully made a BLT just because I eat the bacon before any other part. How pitmasters and restaurateurs are helping put small-scale pig farmers back to work in Alabama. It's all about money. That's the bottom line. What pork has to do with economics? Farmers could be particularly affected by China's threat to levy its own tariffs on pork and soybeans. And with government. Basically all of politics is pork at this point. So tune in on Friday afternoon for your weekly serving of Meat and 3. And make sure you subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes air. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner and co-chef of Samisa Restaurant in Williamsburg. My guest today is Laura Cole. She grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, just like me, and she moved to Alaska, not like me, after graduating college. While working at a lodge at Denali National Park, she got hooked on Alaska. She then pursued an advanced placement culinary program at the New England Culinary Institute in Vermont, and then she traveled to Paris to also study there, and she's worked in kitchens all over the globe. Along with the help of her husband and some friends, they built 229 Park Restaurant and Tavern at the entrance to Denali National Park in 2005. She's been at the forefront of identifying, developing, and pushing the boundaries of what Alaskan cuisine can be. She appeared on Top Chef in season 15, and she has twice been nominated in 2016 and 2017 for Best Chef Northwest. And 2018. And 2018, (laughs) sorry, uh, from the James Beard Foundation. So three years in a row. Three years in a row. All right, cool. (laughs) Hopefully bring that award back to Alaska pretty soon. We're knocking on that door. (laughs) Let's start in both of our hometowns, the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. So you grew up in Gross Point. Uh, for those that have never been to Detroit and don't know the orientation of the city, uh, where is Gross Point and what was life like when you were growing up? Oh, I had a great childhood. I mean, suburban Michigan is a beautiful place to spend time. And uh, 
We were in and out of the city a lot. And my dad is in advertising, and so there's a lot of functions and a lot of um, events that we would go to. But it's um, you know idyllic living on a lake and boating and um, having neighborhood friends and great schools and uh, just a, a lot of exposure to a lot of different cultures at the same time, which is something that is fundamentally a part of me that I um, miss in Alaska. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, I, just, I have uh, three siblings and we are thick as thieves and we um, had a very, you know, a whole, holistic, pure, slightly indulged childhood. <laughs> Detroit on paper, it's, it, it appears to be the opposite of Alaska. It's sort of like suburban sprawl. It's the home of the automobile. There's a lot of uh, strip malls and things of that. But Gross Point is actually on the water and it is kind of a bit removed. Um, it's There is nature surrounding you when you live in Gross Point. You can get to Belle Isle pretty quickly. But did your family have a uh, an outdoorsy vibe to it growing up? Did you go camping? Did you get out of uh, Detroit and go up north or anything like that? We would go up north sometimes. Um, both of my parents are from New York. So um, my dad went to St. Peter's Prep for college. My mom went to Fordham University for college. They are very... Um, comfortable in more urban situations. Uh, so uh, we, we weren't a camping family. Nope. <laughs> because there's this, uh, for those that have never been to, to Michigan, we say going up north, which I don't know, most other states don't really use that term, but it's this idea that anywhere where you drive that is sort of out of the city, even if you drive to the west side of the state, uh, <laughs> you're still going up north, right? Yeah. And so... Um, did you get an opportunity to visit the UP when you lived in Michigan, uh, which is the Upper Peninsula, which is totally remote and uh, I would say is close-ish in proximity to <laughs> Alaska in terms of like how spaced out everything is? Yeah, I went to the UP uh, just a couple times with some friends in high school. When um, we would go up north as a family, we would go to like Harbor Springs or Traverse City. Sure. Um, <laughs> so. Which, for those that are listening that don't know, those are basically like pretty fancy, and they are uh, they're well developed. It's like a big town that's near water. It's like going to the Hamptons. Yeah. <laughs> the, ooh, the Hamptons of Michigan. I like that. How how swanky we are in Michigan. <laughs> Yeah, no, actually, um, my first time going to Alaska, the just vastness and the natural beauty of the state just shook me to the core. I'd never seen such big open spaces that weren't, you know, kind of blocked off with power lines and road systems and that sort of thing. It, um, it seemed very, very exotic to me when I first got to Alaska. What was the general thought from friends, family, when you went to Alaska the first time, like we're talking about if you needed to reach someone, you had to call them on a landline. And if they didn't pick up, you kind of didn't know where they were, right? Like that's, I, that's, that's pretty much, we're talking pre-Facebook when you moved to Alaska. So it was 
probably hard to keep tabs on you. And then you were all the way across the United States. What what were your parents thinking when that happened? Yeah, they couldn't even contact me by phone. Oh, um, wow. Okay. <laughs> so I was in the middle of a national park um, that had like satellite phone service that was pretty intermittent. And so um, like it was emergency use, basically. Um, but um, it was, uh, they were apprehensive and nervous they were excited for my adventure but they um they felt like it was like something i'd get out of my system i'd, I'd come on back <laughs> were you always an adventurous uh person growing up or did this seem did it feel out of character for you and did people think that it was out of character for you to say i'm going to alaska and did people say what laura's going to alaska or did they say oh of course <laughs> laura's going to live in the middle of a national park by herself in alaska no, um, people definitely thought, uh, I, I, I would say I was a rebellious person <laughs> versus, uh, people definitely thought it was out of character. I, um, I, I, I hadn't done really much car camping outside of car camping. I, I wasn't, um, big into like mountaineering or, uh, winter sports. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, it, I think maybe because I was so, um, it, w it wasn't something that I was accustomed to that it, it, it seemed a lot more like welcoming to sort of experience all of that for the first time on like Alaska's like turf. How long did you stay there the first time before coming back to Vermont to go to culinary school? Well, the first year I went to Alaska I went there uh, to work seasonally for the summer and then decided to stay the winter and we traveled to New Zealand for uh, a couple months that winter so I stayed there I came in I came in June and left in uh, February and came back in April so uh, and then the following winter I stayed and moved to Anchorage and worked and lived in Anchorage for the winter. And then the year after that, I went back to New England for culinary school. And why Vermont? What, what was the draw to go so far back in the other direction? Was it the school? Was it Vermont? Like what really grabbed you about, about leaving the West Coast? Well, my um, my partner <laughs> at the time, um, we were kind of a package deal. So uh, he was really interested in learning about timber frame construction. Um, there were there was a family property um, in um, Cornish, New Hampshire, which we had access to use, um, and there was great timber framing operations back there. And the New England Culinary Institute at that time um, had a very small student-to-teacher ratio, and it seemed like I could get a lot out of a progr that program in a short period of time. So it, um, it was sort of like the pieces kind of came together for it to be a successful time for both of us. And what happened after culinary school? You went on another adventure <laughs> and shot overseas just consistently refusing to return to Michigan or the, <laughs> or the Midwest. You're just like ping-ponging all around the United States uh, on both coasts, and then you shoot over to Paris what? and spend time there? Or did no. you go somewhere else first? The first thing I did when um, I finished up culinary school, I went back to Alaska uh, for a little bit and um, 
was convinced that the next great adventure should be Antarctica. (laughs) And I went down to be the cook for the South Pole Station. Um, And it was sort of like, you know, kind of thumbing culinary school a little bit because everybody was doing these externships with these famous chefs and all this. And I um, just wanted to get kind of away from a little bit of the what I was perceiving as kind of the bouginess of the industry mm-hmm. and just get back to, um, you know, cooking for people that really needed some good food. And uh, so um, so I went to the Amundsen Scott South Pole Station for four months. So no Charlie Trotter in externship, <laughs> you decided no. to go far. Uh, mm-hmm. What is that experience like? I saw online that you basically did your food shopping transport via sled? Yeah. So you would like harness up a sled and then you would go marching through like, um, this was in the old station. So this is in the dome. And then they had extra berms outside that were set aside for food storage. And you'd climb up on these huge monkey racks and you'd pitch down whatever you needed to thaw. It's usually a, like a two or three day out thaw process. And of then, course, because it's negative 30 <laughs> degrees. So it, it, maybe. <laughs> so, And then you would like march back across all this snow and um, throw your stuff into the warming room to bring it to thaw and take your thawed stuff out and prep it for the day. Uh, I spent a lot of time, the kitchens were really warm and lovely and it was sort of a sanctuary for me and I cooked all the time. I mean, I just, I would do, and the thing about cooking down there, you didn't really have to worry about calories at all or, uh, I mean, you could just kind of get into that. That's like, your friend. Comfort cooking. So I would make like all butter brioche dough and then make donuts out of it and then do a station all call, be like fresh donuts. <laughs> and uh, I definitely um, got a lot of comfort making food for people. And people really, um, really responded well. Um, there was an incident where um, we... Uh, some, not me personally, but some people got their hands on an Antarctic cod and uh, snuck it into the kitchen. And this fish is like enormous. And I, I mean, I had to climb up on the table and try and get into it and try and debone it. And it was, uh, and out of like, out of the wings, everybody came in with little gifts from their pockets. Like somebody would have a, like a fresh root of ginger. I mean, we didn't have fresh vegetables or fruit down there very often at all. It was a a pretty extreme thing and the pilots for the transport planes in and out of the station would like came in with like lemons and limes and it turned into a, and then the construction crew took the night off so they could set the whole dining room and it turned into this like just epic feast and everybody pitched in and it was just there there's moments like that that I think were just pure gifts that Antarctica gave me but um but it's a pretty extreme environment it's a really hard place to cook it's very high in elevation uh it's very dry and uh it's a work camp I uh, was wondering yeah what the limitations would be based on the geography and just the the temperatures uh when you say that you had no access to you know, fresh, fresh vegetables, or it was very rare. So how were you doing ordering and how was that brought in? Were you ordering Uh, for the entire, were you ordering for six months worth of product and it was brought in on a plane? Like how did you acquire food at all? 
So um, ordering's done in yearly increments um, for the stations. Um, it comes in on a big icebreaker from New Zealand over to McMurdo, which is the coastal station and the largest station down there. And then it's flown from McMurdo into the pole. But there is limitations on those flights based on weather. They only have four months of the year that they can operate flights in and out of the station. And a lot of them have to be delivering just fuel to support the station so that um, everything weight-wise on those flights gets accounted for. And, uh, and when it's possible and when the temperatures are warm enough, then they try and get some fresh stuff over. McMurdo has fresh stuff continuously and they have a lot more access to that station and a lot more access to New Zealand. But the South Pole station is literally at the South Pole. And it's like it's extremely hard to get stuff in and out of there. So they just you're working with somebody else's order from a previous year. But there is so much food down there that just like just stays. And so, you, you know, it, nothing, everything's kept between 30 and 50 below zero. So nothing really goes bad, goes bad in any capacity. And you just, um, there, there's, there's ample stuff. Who were you cooking for? Was it a, is it a government base? Is it an army base? Is it science researchers? Like who's there? So it's run, um, through the Navy. Um, but it's a, it's a contract out for support services for the station and construction crews. So it was half construction for the new station and half science. And so um, the science, there's a whole variety of science that goes on down there. A lot of it is trying to test like clean air and air pollution rates through ice layers. And um, there is weather balloons and weather patterns. And there's a whole bunch of different... Um, cold weather science that happens down there. And then that year, the crew was large because there was extra construction crew for building the new station, which now they're totally in the new station and they've taken down the classic like dome station that I worked in. Did you ever go back to visit? Have you been back since? No, you can't. I mean, it's... It, <laughs> you, it, can, it, you can't really visit the South Pole. <laughs> um, you I, can't hop on one of those icebreakers and no, check it out again? No, um, It's not really... It doesn't That station doesn't really work like that at uh -huh. all. Um, I actually have not been back to Antarctica in any capacity since I left there. I, I was a kind of one-and-done person. A lot of people do return um, the... The work is good, the pay is good, and you get a trip to New Zealand out of it, and it works a lot really well with seasonally with the Alaska work, but was not really for me. And it was because of Antarctica that I decided the next winter I really needed to do something better for myself, which is why I went to Paris. <laughs> so. Uh, you, so you make another change, <laughs> and, and you end up in Paris, and... How long do you spend there? And also, I'm curious: is it your true, real first experience working in a rest, working in a restaurant, cooking environment that has that type of technique and that type of discipline? Did you have teachers there that were different than other teachers? And how did that impact your style and how you've kind of grown after that? Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> you take you take little things from every experience with you to help you grow and become a better, you know, for me, a better chef, a better person in this world. Uh, Paris was lovely and it was great. And the school was very, very hard. And I got yelled at every day <laughs> and I cried a lot. Um, 
But I have just enormous respect for the amount of discipline that goes into um, any of the culinary art studies in Europe. It's just, it's, it is definitely next level about just respecting and understanding technique and ingredient and, um, and I was I was glad for after sort of the wild west of Antarctica to to sort of get myself a little bit more structured again, and uh, and it was I mean and it was a little bit of a dream come true. Um, every summer it, during that time in my life, I kept circling back to Alaska um, to work in these lodges, and and once I had done that for a couple of years in a row. The the job is sort of the same. It doesn't really change. You're you know you you change some of your menu items. You're training staff. You're bringing in supplies. It's the same guess in guess out. You know sort of rotation of things. And so my winters were a time for me to really like push myself and challenge myself and to try and ultimately get to the place where I got to of being confident enough to open my own restaurant. Did you do any traveling? Uh- in other countries after the Paris experience, or did you basically go back to Alaska and continue pursuing your career in Alaska? Um, the following winter, uh, we went to Portugal for a bit. Um, I mean, we, we travel a lot and, and, but not for, you know, not for big extended stays. Alaska is always this pole, you know, at that point in time, we were like more doing six months on working and then taking some time off. And, uh, I was also working on a cookbook for the lodges. And so, um, and then, uh, in 2003, um, I, um, had a baby boy. So that kind of puts you on lockdown for a little bit. Um, yeah. So I, you know, not, not for, not for like living situations. There was a lot of extended travel, but not, not where I actually kind of set down roots anywhere. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about setting down roots and opening your restaurant in Alaska in 2005. We'll be right back. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio. what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound? What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com.
Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is Laura Cole. She opened in 2005 229 Park Restaurant and Tavern, which is at the entrance to Denali National Park in Alaska. How did you go about opening that? Was there an existing structure there? Did you have to lease the land from the government or a private entity? Take us through the process of finding said space <laughs> and then building a restaurant, which is, uh, we're also talking, we're four hours north of Anchorage out, yeah, about. 230 miles north of Anchorage. <laughs> S- stuff nearby? Not stuff nearby? No. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, I looked on Google Maps and I sort of zoomed in and out and looked around and I thought, there's not a gas station nearby, no. really. There's not a <laughs> motel nearby. So how did, how did um, 229 come to be? So um, we were looking to make some investments and it seemed to property was a good thing to invest in. And in 1998, this property came up for sale um, and it's a five acre lot uh, right on the highway and it doesn't have covenants on it. And there's a lot of property up there that has covenants on it to say that they can't be used for a business purpose or that sort of thing. Um, so it seemed like a good idea just to buy the property. Uh, it had a small owner's cabin on it and um, a sauna building, which we turned into a chicken coop. Um, and it had a garage. Um, and we just didn't really do anything with it for quite some time, but we always had it. So we thought, like, well, we can sell it for equity or or whatever. Um and then in 2003, um, I decided I, I really wanted to do my own thing and have my, my own place. And the first thing that you have to do to see if a property is even going to be viable to support a business is you have to dig a well and you have to get water and you have to test and make sure your water doesn't have arsenic or lead or levels in it. And then and to do that, you need an additional, at least a minimum of $30,000. And there's no guarantee you're going to get water. So we had somebody walk the land um, with the water rods. And he said, dig a well here. And so we did. And we got really, really, really beautiful, beautiful water. Um, it is 244 feet in the ground. So it was an expensive process. And then... Once we decided we were going to actually build a restaurant on that site, then we had to get the um, well and the septic and all the water systems designed by a state-approved commercial engineer, and which is another expensive process. Uh, and then we started on making plans for the building, and um, it just kind of went from there. Um, Land is a timber framer, so he designed and cut the frame for the building, and we used the existing garage as sort of our launch pad, and that turned into what is currently my kitchen. And then we took the garage doors out, and we built the walk-ins out of that side of it. Uh, and it took us um, it took us about a year and a half to finish construction. And uh, uh, other than that, I mean, you have to have your plans approved by the state. The, the environmental committee has to come in and make sure you have appropriate sinks and the rest of that your fire has to come in to make sure you're all up to code fire wise but there isn't really any like since there is no zoning and there isn't there isn't any real other oversight it's definitely still like the wild west um in that capacity so and construction goes like that too we had we didn't know what we were doing and we learned a lot in the process <laughs> but uh but since you do your own i mean you we have our own you know 
thousand gallon propane tank outside and then everything in the restaurants propane fed as far as the rain there's no gas lines or anything like that as far as the range and the ovens and the dryer and the water heater um and so then you and then you have your own trash company that brings you a dumpster and you know it's basically everything is yours like you're not dealing with cities are you hooked to an electrical grid we are hooked commercially to electrical grid. Um, they brought power through um, in 19, must have been like 96, that mm-hmm. commercial power ran through that whole area. So, um, yeah, we we got we did a, like a voltage estimate on all of our equipment. <laughs> we matched up to certain grid sizes. And, yeah, you just kind of go for it. <laughs> Do you live on the property? Do you live nearby? No, I live two miles away, okay. which is great. Um, and uh, and so I leave work, which is lovely. Yeah. And I, I can come into work. Nice um, to have that separation. It's really nice to have the separation. Um, and it's easy enough and close enough that I'm never that far away, which is great. Uh, everybody was really nervous when we opened the restaurant. There wasn't any freestanding restaurant in that area at all. Um, most restaurants were attached to lodging and were open only seasonally. We built our restaurant and all of our water systems to be able to operate at 40, 50 below zero, which is why most places close down because they just don't have the infrastructure to support those cold temperatures. Um, and I decided I didn't want to do lodging. I just wanted to do food. And we learned a lot over the years and we continue to like evolve and change and grow. But we stuck to our guns right out of the gate and we don't serve a lot of like commercial brands or products. We don't have Coke or Pepsi or a soda gun. It's not the most comfortable restaurant for people to get their heads around. Initially, it took a lot of like community support and and kind of years of sort of nurturing them into some of my menu concepts and ways of thinking. And it's um, turned out to be wildly successful. People drive hundreds of miles to come and eat there. They fly their planes in and land at the private strip across the street and walk over for dinner. Of course they do. (laughs) (laughs) Of course they fly their private planes and land them across the street. It's uh, Like most restaurants that I've been to before. Um, we've been able to develop like crazy, wonderful, beautiful relationships with like small scale farmers and ranchers and fishermen and across the state. I mean, our peonies come down on the mail truck and, you know, our microgreens, they meet me at a gas station for a drive by 120 miles south of me. (laughs) How cool. Let's, let's actually, let's talk more about this, uh, the sourcing, like do do you hunt, fish, forage? Do people on your staff hunt, fish, forage? Do they bring things into the restaurant? Do you have a sort of a standard order with things that are on the menu? Or do you change the menu so much based on what you can get your hands on? We write a daily menu that's based basically driven by the garden harvest. Um, and that changes all the time. And you can think you're going to get you know, 20 cabbages today, but a moose just walked through and ate them all. And so instead, we've got all this Mizuna. And um, so we, uh, it's such a gift in the summer to have so much bounty right outside our door that 
we really let that drive what we're creating. And, um, and I, I really like to think out of the box with a lot of that stuff, but I like to force sort of that Alaskan driven menu where each item on my menu has to, uh, focal point has to be an ingredient from Alaska, whether it's foraged, farmed, fished, ranched. We don't, you can't hunt and then serve that food commercially. So mm-hmm. any um, livestock has to be certified uh, USDA inspected kill and slaughter. So that happens. I have some great from great guys up at um, North Pole that do my slaughters for me. <laughs> and uh, Can't stay away from those poles. You just, <laughs> you love the North and the South Pole. You just... Oh, it's pretty funny. And then um, the gardens, um, we we take everything we can get our hands on from small scale gardens to people that garden just for us at the restaurant um, to people that have extra overstock up in Fairbanks and they can get it down to me. We have rhubarb drive-bys, like you guys have zucchini drop bombs here, where like people in the middle of the night, there'll be a 55-gallon garbage can of rhubarb right outside the door, and then no note. It's like, oh, no, so much rhubarb. <laughs> but uh, we And then foraging, um, I get out and do what I can when I can, but I don't have a lot of time, and it all depends on the year and like most of it is like the berry harvest spruce tips are right now um we're getting a lot of other like fireweed shoots and other things that are like tender right now fiddlehead ferns that sort of thing berries are the big one we do currants cranberries raspberries blueberries cloudberries and we my staff will go out and pick um will anybody can pick and I'll buy the berries off of them. Um, so a lot of different people from different jobs in the area take an afternoon and go berry picking and they'll either barter for meals at the restaurant or like I'll just buy them straight out. Um, morels, we've had a lot of good fires that have gone through the state the past couple of years that have left a lot of like very large morel harvests, which has been great. Uh, and then, um, you know, my reindeer live up in Fairbanks and it's like they get slaughtered in North Pole. So we got to figure out a way to get those down all the time. And then the pigs come from Palmer, which is hundreds of miles in the other direction. And basically once a week, somebody is running about, you know, five or 600 miles of the highway collecting ingredients for us. And then we have friends that run planes back and forth, small, um, like bush planes. And if there's space on them, they'll bring ingredients for me through and stuff, which is, which is also phenomenal. But it's like, it's a hands across the state. It's not a, it's not like, oh, I call it my purveyor. And then all of a sudden I have a case of napkins or something. It doesn't work like that. You don't have a Baldor truck double parking in the nope. street in front of your <laughs> restaurants. Not, not quite like that. What you've described really sounds like the dream. When I ask chefs on this program and an off air, if you could conceptualize a restaurant that is what you would want to do, they usually say, I want to be doing my own thing in nature, kind of off the grid. I want to be cooking based on what I'm getting. It all sounds incredible. <laughs> Now my question is, what's the flip side though? What are the what are the the great challenges that you face beyond just the geographical isolation? Like what are the hard parts of your job being a chef um in Alaska? Is it the same as anywhere else? Like staffing and labor costs or do you have unique challenges that aren't just the the isolation? 
Yeah, I we definitely have unique challenges. I mean, all of those challenges are the same because of the industry. I mean, labor, taxes, you know, that sort of thing. That's all what it is. I, we have a lot of gifts because we are really heavily supported by our community and the state, and I feel very lucky about that. Um, you know, if something goes wrong, like I know how to rewire my convection oven because there isn't an electrician you're going to call and, you know, the thermostat went out. And so YouTube is my huge friend. <laughs> so, and some, you have to be able to really kind of get behind things and be able to fix things yourself. You can't just be like, oh, well, the ice machine's not working, you know, and then you have to know how to like change the sensor monitors and how to like deep clean it and re-trigger it so it's reading the right thickness or, I mean, you, you have to know how to like thaw out your compressors on your freezer because it's running to keep warm because it's 50 below outside and you're trying to like, you're using a freezer in the opposite capacity that it's intended to run in. And so you're constantly troubleshooting your equipment. Um, you know, if you run out of thermal paper for your register, there isn't a store you can go get it at. You can't to, borrow it from your neighbor either. Not in the winter. <laughs> the winter, nobody else is open. But um, this winter, that actually did happen. And somebody went into somebody's, like, shut down and boarded up property and got their thermal paper out of their receipt printer and drove it over to me. They um, had thermal paper. They, <laughs> they, they couldn't stay in business, but they had left the thermal paper behind. Uh, when... When you opened in 2005, did you think that this many years later you would have an unbelievably successful restaurant that was still thriving and changing? Like, ha has it surprised you or do you say, uh, yeah, I knew? Like, I had great faith in the project and I knew? Or are you kind of caught off guard by the fact that you're still not only around, but that you are actually you're having sort of the best couple years right now. You're still on the upswing, really. Yeah, I um, I went into it, you know, blindly ambitious and overconfident for sure. Um, and I had an infant at the time. He's now 14. Um, I think like the evolution of being a parent and then watching a business grow, there was definitely years and times where I was exhausted by it and I kind of wanted it, it to be over and do what's next and that sort of thing. And, and then, you know, there, something would happen some night, some menu item, some new relationship with a new fisherman or something would happen. And I would just fall blindly back in love with it again. And, uh, I have had a really great time this past year. Um, I think a lot of the relations that I made on um, Top Chef and the friendships and the outreach I was able to establish to create this different group of chefs that I got to be really good friends with that helped motivate and spark just a whole new flow of creativity from me and um, aspirations and be able to bring that back to Alaska and rem remind myself how much I loved what I'm able to do there. It, it's just been fantastic. Do you feel like you cook and or represent Alaskan cuisine? Is that a thing or are, do you kind of a little bit roll <laughs> your eyes at that and say, I cook food and I live in Alaska and those aren't 
No. Those aren't the same? For me, they're very much one and the same. And actually, I, it's one of the things that I say a lot that I am striving to with a group of very talented chefs across the state right now, really kind of identify our own cuisine. We get lumped into like Nordic cuisine or Pacific Northwest cuisine, and they all have established their own sort of vision of cuisine. Hawaii has its own cuisine. Alaska is an enormous state with a huge bounty and and used to be so much less reliant on the lower 48 for um, all their ingredients, support, that sort of thing. And and it's not it's not saying it's a native aspect to it, but just respecting what we have there and really showcasing it is something I'm extremely proud of. And I mean, all the work that Alaska Seafood does to just put themselves out there. I mean, I, I am completely biased and I get called out on it all the time, but I don't serve any seafood that's not from Alaska. And I serve it fresh when I can get it. And I serve it frozen in the winter. And I, I, I blindly love it. And I feel that it's the job of chefs in the state. It's the job of restaurateurs in the state. It's the job of all of us to collaborate and work together to really kind of identify ourselves as our own style. Chef Laura Cole, thank you so much for coming and joining us here on the line on Heritage Radio. Uh, you're a little bit out there, but we'll, we do this at the end of every show. Where can people find you? If, <laughs> if, they're, if they're in Alaska, they happen to stumble onto Denali, uh, where are you located in Alaska? So my restaurant is at mile 229 on the Parks Highway, hence the name 229 Parks. Uh, Alaska is one very big, small state, and most people are, you know, three degrees of separation from each other. So um, I do a lot of events in Anchorage uh, with at a bunch of my friends' restaurants. I help out with some events in Fairbanks as well. Um, but if you're anywhere near Denali National Park, definitely come check us out. The back door of the kitchen is always open. We have a ton of fun. <laughs> Enjoy your time in the lower 48. It sounds like a <laughs> magical, magical place. Uh, I hope that some of the listeners and maybe even me, uh, we get to join you sometime at your restaurant in Alaska. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. And uh, listeners, thank you again for joining us. You can be with us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for a new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.